Ah, oh, dear listener, we're back after two weeks. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. I'm Trevor, aka the Iron Fist, aka the Advocatus Diaboli of the Noosa Temple of Satan at the moment. Uh, this is a podcast. We talk about news and politics, sex and religion. With me as always, Paul the 12th Man. Greetings, Earthlings. Shay, still in search of a pseudonym. Yes, hello. And Joe, the tech guy. Evening all. Right. So, um, hello out there in the live stream. If you're joining us, please say hello and let us know you're there and make some comments and we'll try and get to you. We've got lots of topics to talk about. It's been two weeks. I needed the break. Um, I've got a lot on. Um, I'll give you a Noosa Temple of Satan update. And then, of course, we'll talk about various things that have happened. Uh, the um, Dance Troop 101 Doll Squadron deserves a mention. Um, the consent video. Um, Scott Morrison and his wife doing a Handmaid's Tale impersonation. Um, we've got uh, all sorts of other bits and pieces to talk about, some more difficult than others. So anyway, just what have I been up to with the Noosa Temple of Satan Dear listener, what happened was that the temple applied at four schools for um, approval to conduct their satanic religious instruction lessons. And under the Act, it's as of right. You don't really apply and meet any criteria. You just say, I'm here to do it, and when do I start? It's that sort of thing. And the education department responded and said, uh, we don't consider you a religious denominational society for the purposes of the Act. And they basically gave two reasons, uh, one of which was that, according to them, we don't have enough members in order to constitute a society or denomination. So that one's going to fail pretty quickly, but it would be nice of you to make noise and uh, follow our Facebook page and like it and things like that. Uh, and the other one was that essentially that the temple had a political origin story, which meant that the temple is not a religious organisation, it's more of a political one. And I think we'll knock that one on the head pretty quick because um, basically what's more important is what does a temple do at the moment, not what it was doing one, two or whatever years ago. It's what's it up to at the moment. And so, so I think we've got pretty good grounds to challenge it and we've lodged an application in the Supreme Court and... Uh, there'll be some affidavits and submissions filed over the coming months and there'll probably be a hearing sometime in July and wish me luck. It's a little bit of a two-edged sword. I can't go into too much details about it. But anyway, I think it's – I really just, you know, I couldn't let this one go. The, the letter was so dodgy, the reason's so poor. This, If we're ever going to have a crack at something, this is the time to do it. So um, so we'll see what happens. Um Yes, and in the meantime, as I mentioned in the um, post, just personally, uh, had my mother-in-law passed away and I've got a crazy family to deal with in terms of my wife has some great sisters and then she's got some who are far less than great and there's a lot of uh, difficulties there. In, it's almost dealing with them is worse than dealing with the state of Queensland in this case. So anyway, well, uh, that's keeping me busy. So enough of my personal stuff and what we're up to. If you're not already a follower of the Noosa Temple of Satan, go over there and have a look. And it's going to cause a big problem for religious instruction classes in Queensland. That's the whole idea. So um, so um, there'll be some changes as a result of all this, I'm sure. It's interesting to see how it pans out. Okay. Well... Uh, Dance Troop 101 Doll Squadron. 
when we who booked it? Did we find out? I don't know. <laughs> but it's such a strange. It's such a strange image when you see the the video that the ABC produced with these young ladies dancing in front of this ship on this dock, gyrating away, and cut in was the were the um, dignitaries watching on, or maybe they weren't watching on because it's turned out that the dignitaries, some of them weren't even there. And so they've, they've cut in footage of people who may not have been watching at the time and may not have been watching in that way. But it was certainly just a very strange scene of, um, of that. So um, the, this is the part I like. The groups, uh, the dance group's director was Maya Sheridan, and she said... Um, well, actually, the reason they were booked is because they're a local group in Willamaloo mm. and, and the Navy was wanting to connect with its local community. Yes. From the university? I don't know. I don't know if it's from the university. The University not. of Willamaloo? Yes. <laughs> What's, is there a University of Willamaloo? Is this a joke? <laughs> it is a joke. Monty Python. Oh, really? In Monty <laughs> Python it had a University of Willamaloo? Yes. Really? <laughs> right. Okay. So, Good um, Monty yeah. Uh, anyway, the 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 group's director, Maya Sheridan, when speaking about the dance, said, "With indigenous and multiracial members from a community-based dance group, the dance itself was made up of a choreographic and musical elements that included referencing blessings, the waves of the ocean, and our geographical location where the fresh water meets the sea, to name a few." Ms. Sheridan said. You listen, I've watched a lot of dance in my time. <laughs> I have a daughter who was a professional dancer. Yes. Good luck to them if they're able to express... All those things. Okay, the waves of the ocean. <laughs> but how you'd express how the fresh water meets the sea, it, it's... It's interpretive, it's, Trevor. It is. It is. I just... Um, so yeah. just share with the, yeah. the listeners, when you're at home doing your interpretive dance. What are you exactly <laughs> conveying? <laughs> a lot less twerking. <laughs> I've never seen Trevor twerk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. yeah. It was it was so there's the ABC has come under fire because they edited it um well don't want to say fraudulently. It could have been mistakenly, but who knows? But anyway, it certainly conveyed an impression it wasn't accurate, so they're in trouble over that. And it's one of those things, uh, according to Crikey, it said it's it's our JFK moment. Everyone in this generation will remember where they were when they first saw the 101 Doll Squadron gyrating in between a giant Navy supply ship and an array of stony-faced Australian Defence Force figures. So I like this part here. Because Sky News and the more conservative outlets came out and said... Um, this is a terrible thing by the ABC. Yet another reason why we should defund them. Mm. And um, uh, as Crikey said, the weekend's event acts as a Rorschach test, assuming the shape of whatever the viewer imposes. It could be the evidence of the army getting too woke. It could be a general slipping of military standards away from the core business of applying lethal violence. Or it could be just plain great. It's entirely up to you as you view it as to how you see it. And I think that's true, actually. Whatever sort of preconceived ideas you might have when you view it, uh, you sort of take those on board as you look at this strange scene. Paul, did you have any thoughts about the scene as you saw it? Or did you? Didn't... I 
didn't I wasn't actually aware of it right. until maybe you made me aware of it. Okay. I mean, it right. wasn't something I'd come across in the news. and Right. Oh, I just thought it was so trivial as to be hardly worthy right. of comment. Right. Okay. What did you think? Was it such a mm. big deal? Mm. I, I just thought it was amazing decision-making to have that troop doing that in that mm. situation. I just thought it was a strange juxtaposition of, little bit. of things happening. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, the Rorschach test is that um, psychological test where people are showing like ink blots and they um, are asked to look at the ink block and, and what do you see? And then um, some people might see a butterfly and other people might see an evil demon or whatever and it's sort of a way of looking at how people respond to it Maybe they're being more honest about themselves when they're looking at the ink block. So anyway, that's I, what I can see two angels, right, um, who are ready to join the Noosa Satanic Temple. Actually, you're right. Looking at that particular ink block, I see like a moth or a mm. butterfly type thing. But you're right; it could be two angels facing I, each other. I just other. want to know how they managed to capture my parents fighting so vividly. <laughs> <laughs> that's that. Yep. Okay, so that was. Uh, just strange, uh, number one. And um, Mel says, about as amazing as the Coalition's milkshake consent video. Yes. And that's what we're on to next, Mel. <laughs> I, well, um, so we had this, we've had a lot of issues or talk lately about consent and how um, uh, we need to educate people perhaps on what consent is. And there's this amazing video that came out and I'm going to play you some of the audio so you can you can hear, dear listener. It's a scene where basically um, sort of a late teenage couple are sitting down with a milkshake. So I'll just play some of that now. To cross into the action zone, both people must agree. Do you want to try my milkshake? Yes, I do. Is it better than yours? You know, I think I prefer mine. But what happens when one person takes action without an agreement? You do, huh? Well, drink it. Drink it all. What are you doing? Drink it all. This is what we call moving the line. When a person imposes their will on you, it's as if they were moving the yes line over the maybe zone or the end zone. Anyway, she's like smearing the ice cream from the milkshake on this guy's. Tell yeah, me what? that doesn't sound like 1980s Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I don't... The sound effects, I swear, are from the same reel. Right. I... <laughs> so, um, Shay, was that a, a good way of, of oh, get, they conveying... They they didn't hear any audio. Ah, Ah, okay. Well, um... It's not playing. Okay. Uh, okay, wow. it didn't come through for some reason. Yeah. I don't know why. That's well, weird. Very weird. Yeah, I could hear it through here. Anyway, Shay, yes. is that a good way of uh, teaching the ideas of consent to young people? Do you think that would be successful? No, it just seems like more kind of like firstly it costs $3 million to put that together apparently to be rolled out to the states, which I think most of the states probably won't take it up. And um, 
firstly, the, the females, the perpetrator, they deal with this thing about crossing the line. Then they deal in some sort of convoluted thing around an apology and around respect. Doesn't mention sexual harassment. Doesn't actually deal with uh, any of the issues seeming to me um, in a direct way. Which, considering the kind of content on the internet, does seem like more disservice to young people. So, yeah, that's just to start. So there's lots of problems with it. And it just seems obvious they didn't actually consult any experts Mm. who could have really contributed something worthwhile. It it was, or even maybe a woman. Yeah, doesn't even feel like that. It's supposed to be pitched, obviously, to teenagers who are starting to have sexual experiences or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the tone and language and style was suited to almost a preschool age kid. And, yes, and with that sort of professor type voice coming over as well. Honestly, um, at some point. Um, I think I've gotten this article here. It said that uh, at some point somebody should have stopped and said, this looks like it was scripted by Borat. Stop. Stop right now. (laughs) Another good comment that I read was, oh, back in my day at Sunday school, it was a Coke and a Mars bar. That was what we got bribed with for a kiss or something. And I was just like, oh, God, it's awful. (laughs) So even when this government tries to do something right, and like, okay, let's, you know, we've been, we need to beef up protection of women and with consent and let's do something to help educate. Honestly, nobody stopped and said, this is complete rubbish. Mm. Where are these people living? What life experience have they got that they sat in a room and said, oh, that's good. Put that out. Like, I just, I just can't believe how talent how talentless these people are. It's a little bit like when um, when um, Tony Abbott awarded Prince Philip, rest yes. in peace, a Order of Australia or something. <laughs> and we all went, you deal. That's the most stupid thing. And it was I, my, I, my thing at the time was if they get something like that so crazily wrong and so stupid, how many other mistakes are they making? And if this comes across a desk of the education minister, Dan Tian or whatever, or whoever's responsible for this, and they say, yeah, okay, tick on that and send it out. I just think, what what sort of lame numbskulls are running the rock show? Like, you don't have to be Einstein to look at that and go, do it again. That's yes. crazy. They got the bit of paper. Mm. They said, all oh, right, in the mm. recommendations that says do up a respect, a mm. thing around respectful relationships. Okay, mm. what do we got? Yes. Milkshakes. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. I've got a link to an article which kind of draws a connection between the people who made it and some religious groups. I mm. won't go deep into it because I didn't have time to look deep into it myself, but you sort of wonder it was something probably concocted pretty quickly and they've probably just reached out to some mates who happened to be not very good. There, there was a female name at the bottom of right. that. So right. Clearly there were females consulted. Right. Mm. Yeah. Jane Gilmore. Right. Mm. Um, she, oh, Jane Gilmore was the oh, writer the of this journalist. article. I Sorry, apologize. Yeah. Sorry my, my mistake. Yeah, um, who, who, who makes out that um, it was produced by a group called The Good Society and she says that they have connections to other groups that are basically Mormon-based groups. So it, it could have, have its origins in... There crazy. were some female names among mm. them. Mm. Mm. 
Anyway. Uh, it's a clumsy metaphor, though, isn't it? I mean, if you, mm. if you really want to help young people think about consent and respect and boundaries in sexual behaviour, mm. and we all know it's about sex, mm. but there's no mention of sex at mm. all, mm. you know? Nothing, not even kissing and touching and things like that. I mean, except mm. for her rubbing ice cream in the guy's face. Yes. It's a very clumsy metaphor, isn't it? It's mm. not an obvious, yeah, it's, it's odd. And then they reversed the roles where it was the female who was the aggressor. Yeah. And, and Although uh, yes. I, I have to say it did cross my mind, milkshake sort of conjures up other images, doesn't <laughs> it? <laughs> Doesn't it? Do you? Uh, it was what? also very weird. <laughs> it was, wasn't it? And it just seemed that to show that she was sharing her milkshake with mm. him. <laughs> That's right. mm. Mm. I, I, I just think it was so lame. So anyway, it was pretty lame. A, a, a strange moment in Australian history that one. And um, another one was an image of <laughs> of. Uh, Scamo signing a letter of <laughs> condolence, I think, probably it's a great to do with Prince Philip, and his wife is standing in the background, sort of looking over, and it does have the feel of the Handmaid's Tale. Where's her head covering? <laughs> Indeed, mm. it does have that feel, and um, Magda is o- off Scotty. Um, isn't that her new name? Off Scotty, yeah, off, yes, because in the Handmaid's Tale, the women were. Of uh-huh. Thomas or of yeah, yeah the name yeah. of the man who owned them. That's right. Uh-huh. So of of Scotty, yeah, of Scomo, <laughs> of Scomo. Um, so Magda Zabanski, she's put out a tweet saying, "Good morning to everyone else to whom this feels creepy, chilling, terrifying, ominous, enraging, despairing, and utterly, completely something depressing." So she ran out of um, adjectives, negative yeah. adjectives. Yeah, um, and then she got. Criticised mm. because it was seen as she was criticising the appearance of Scamo's wife, Jen. Any thoughts whether it was fair comment or not? Don't see that as criticising Jen. Mm. Mm. No. It's more the overall scene. I would say mm. so. Mm. Yeah. Didn't mention her by name, just re- referred to the scene. So. Mm. Um, so those who are familiar with The Handmaid's Tale, if you haven't watched the series, go and watch it. You haven't watched it? Never. Oh, great series. You haven't watched it either? No. Oh. Okay. I find the, the topic a little bit depressing, to be mm. honest, and there are times when I can sit and watch a depressing mm. depiction of something and other times when I'm just like, nah, can't, mm. can't go there today, you know, mm. too, too heavy. Mm. John Is reckons it, your mic's not on. I can hear you really well. My yeah, mic? Yeah. Yeah. And you're coming through... Me really clearly, mm-hmm. and what I've got should be going out to everybody. So, is anybody else having trouble hearing the twelfth man? Because he sounds perfectly fine to us, and mm. I, I can't, I can't understand why he didn't hear the audio earlier. So, something crazy mm. might be happening. But um, let us know if, <coughs> if there's a problem with the twelfth man's uh, audio. In the it chat is room. important, obviously. Yeah, but even so, like if um, Scott's wife is going to be part of the parcel and she's going to put herself in, then she has to be up for the social media consequence of being criticised. Good point, Shane. Mm. She's putting herself out there yes. in a political message. That's right. So, um, She's yeah. fair game. Yes. But isn't it strange? Why is she standing there in that very submissive um, stance beside well, 
Morrison. But what what is her reason for being there? Some would say it reinforces a, a picture that Morrison likes to portray of of the man in charge with his dutiful woman beside him who is supporting him as in his important work. But he's working for the Australian people. Yes. She but, is not employed by the Australian people. Yeah, but I think he she's there because he wanted to portray that image. Mm. And he sees that as a perfectly normal mm. image. Look, everyone. Mm. Um, daggy dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's well-dressed. She looks daggy, but... Yes. I mean, yeah. oh, well, she looks a little bit plain, I have to say. Yeah. She could have doled herself up a little bit, don't you think? Um, yeah. I mean, if she was just taking the kids to the shopping centre and doing her own business, mm. then we should not be commenting on her appearance like what's totally. the matter. But because she's inserted herself into a political message, then I guess we're entitled to look at it and say, well, what are the messages in here, mm. obvious and, and otherwise? So, um, okay. So, John's anybody else besides John having problems with um, the yes. sound here? Because John thinks it sounds like you're coming through my microphone. But uh, mm. anyway, let's try and work that out. Please, in the chat room, can everyone else hear... Shay and and Paul correctly. Just getting back to this image, so one theory is that this is complementarianism and this is the belief that God assigned specific gender roles and it's now become part of the evangelical doctrine. So um, there we go. Mel says the sound isn't good either. Maybe turn me mm. down. Am I, am I so loud that I'm taking up everybody else's? No? Okay. Um, uh, so complementarianism is, just see, I'm now I'm getting distracted by all this. Um, in 1970s, the women's movement was making inroads and many Christians came to embrace egalitarianism. So in response, in the late 70s, a biblical studies professor, George Knight, published a book New Testament teachings on the role of relation, the role relationship of men and women, and he introduced a new interpretation of role differences. So this is nineteen seventy seven. Other evangelical biblical studies professors began to write about submission and headship in the mid eighties and early nineties, making the claim that women's submission to men was not, as many Christians at the time believed, a result of the fall of the gar- a fall in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Rather, they argued the requirement for women's submission was part of the created order. Men, they explained, were created to rule and women were created to obey. And the evangelical leaders had meetings and conferences, reinforced all these notions. By 1987, there was a statement which was adopted by a bunch of them and the amended section of the family statement said, and this is for Southern Baptists, was... A wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband, even as the church willingly submits to the headship of Christ. She, being in the image of God, as is her husband and thus equal to him, has the God-given responsibility to respect her husband and to serve as his helper in managing the household and nurturing the next generation. So that's real Handmaid's Tale stuff. But when we went to Hillsong, did you get the feeling of that? I can sort of remember, 
a division of of feeling like women, you got to support your men type thing. But that's always been the case Mm. in, you know, fairly traditional religious families, I think, hasn't it? Mm. I mean, I don't see this as a new innovation on the part of these people in the United States. I think that's always been a fairly strong theme. In Catholic and and traditional Anglican teaching, do you think... I know at the preaching level it's been very male-dominated, but Mm. this sort of man as the head, the woman submissive... Yeah, I don't know. I think it's... I think it's come out of the evangelical movement. Well, that's what this sounds like saying. something from Islam on the mm. face of it. Yeah, you know this yeah. idea that the, the the man is the you know God appointed leader of the family and the woman mm. submits to his leadership. Mm. So that's the sort of thinking that Scott Morrison hears and sees when he attends his Horizon Church, mm. and to him, the image of his wife standing behind him as he conducts his business and she supports him. I think he would have. Thought, doesn't everybody do that? But they do have some strong mm. female pastors mm. in those um, Hillsong-type mm. churches too. Right, right. So um, ah, so you figured it out? Okay. So hopefully the audio is better now. Joe's figuring things out. Um, Thanks. Okay. Thank yeah, God, that's what Joe. It, that's the, what yeah, it conjured up for me as well as the only time I went to the Hillsong thing for a Christmas special, mm-hmm. the behest of one of my friends, and frankly I was curious. Mm, but mm. that's immediately when I read that. That's what I thought of as the pastor gets up and introduces his beautiful wife, and yes. there does seem to be this um, yes. theme of yeah, of, of, of women. supportive, yes, nurturing role. And and women, and your cool. role is to support your man, mm. make your man happy, mm. Mm. yeah, and tighten your plumbing as well while you're at it <laughs> <laughs> with Pilates, according to Brian Houston's that's wife. Right. <laughs> I wonder what. Brian Houston would say about milkshakes. <laughs> he knows. Or, Only or, between or, consenting, sorry, between Mrs. married adults. Right. <laughs> and Miss, I wonder what Mrs. Houston would have to say about the milkshakes. Right, right. Because, uh, you know, plumbing and all that. Yeah. That's right. Mm. At least in Western Australia, as you know, the Liberals got decimated there and they're down to two um, two Liberals in the Parliament, and at least they've reached gender equality now, 50-50, because they've got one, a female and a male <laughs> member. So good on the Western Australian Liberals yes. for achieving gender equality over there. Paul, you've probably got something to say about this one, I suspect. Do you think? Are you a fan of The Simpsons? Yeah. I used to be. Right. In the 1990s, mm. um, in its heyday, I suppose, when it was – Really a very clever and witty program and mm. it had lots of cultural references and I often saw references of mo- old movies I'd seen, books I'd read and mm. it was really clever uh, in the 1990s. I'd sort of lost interest since then. Yep. Yep. There were a lot of side jokes to sort of pick up. Yes. Mm. Yeah. I never watched much of it. But anyway, there's a character called um, Apu. 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 Yeah. Who was a yeah, Indian character yeah and he's a really likable character he's, is he oh yeah he's right. absolutely you know this guy who's always trying to please every please the customers and mm. he's he just comes across as a really gentle nice guy doesn't he he, he works yeah. in the 7-eleven and is your friendly neighborhood convenience store clerk yeah. yes so the actor who played that voice is hank azaria and he has apologized for voicing the indian character um, 
And it was a very genuine apology. Like, I read what he said. Like, he wasn't just saying it for the sake of it. Like, he's honestly been to lots of meetings and had lots of discussions with people, and he's come to the view that his portrayal, which was kind of a caricature of a certain type of Indian person. Um, Everyone in The Simpsons is a caricature. Yes. So, Paul, does Hank Azaria need to apologise for his portrayal of Apu? Absolutely not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people, you know, actors, that's what they do. They pretend to be people they're not. Mm. And for goodness sake, you know, I Mm. mean... When actors are only allowed to portray people who look like them mm. in real life, mm. then... What's know. the point of acting? Isn't What's the, the point? Yeah, it's to be, indeed. Pretend Why, to be something you're not. You wouldn't Isn't that what acting, acting school or, right. you know, any yeah. of it, would you? Yes, yeah. Um, I just think with this one, Where's the apology to the white males of the working class that for Homer Simpson? Because Homer's really betrayed as a pretty <laughs> terrible piece of work at times. And if, if, as you say, Apu is is sort of shown to be a nice guy, um, meanwhile, the portrayal of the white working class male by Homer is, is very is, unflattering. Is, is very unflattering and very mean, but. There's no suggestion where, because apparently, I guess the voiceover was done by a white male, and so uh, no apology needed. But it's it's isn't it more important? What's the how? Well, it's it's a, a thing where everybody is lampooned and caricatured. That's the whole point of it. So and you just need to, in, and you just need to enjoy it. Like exactly. It's it's a. It's a portrayal of a certain character that we kind of recognise. Exactly. Taken to an extreme to make it funny. That's kind of what a lot of comedy is. And that's one of the problems with what Trump did and with comedy. It was, he was so extreme it was hard to make fun of him because he just, he, he'd, he'd taken... Uh, Poe's Law. Uh, Poe's Law, isn't it? Well, Poe's Law says that it's impossible to lampoon <clears throat> anything a creationist says... Because there's nothing so ridiculous that they haven't already said it. Oh, there you go. Okay. So, um, Shay, any thoughts that you're game enough to comment on with Apu? Yeah. Or, uh, um, yeah. The Simpsons did an episode on Australia. Right. Yes. And um, Matt Groening, um, which I'm not sure if that's how you say his last name, but mm-hmm. Matt Groening, I think, mm-hmm. <laughs> Close is the creator. And um, there was some backlash from Australians and so he apologised and he said, he said, look, we were trying to be as ludicrous and ridiculous about Australia as we could possibly be, but still still they got some things dead on, you know, and it really is a very good, it really is very, I thought, a very good episode, but I can see mm. how people were offended. Mm. But it's Why? not like he didn't, he didn't, Proceed like he probably did write another episode mm. about Australia. Like, mm. um, there's a difference between apologizing and stopping. Is Apu's actor going to stop being? I think so. Apu? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. yes, he's given that undertaking. Yeah, but I mean, I, I saw the the episode on Australia. I wasn't offended. No, no, I thought mm. it was funny. I thought it was mm. hilarious. Mm. But uh, and again, Monty Python with the Bruce's sketch, mm. the University of Wollongbilly. Mm. Mm. Right. Yep. And why take offence? It, I mean, it, there was there was nothing malicious in it. Yeah, it's almost insulting to a group to say this group is so sensitive they can't um, take a joke. they can't take a joke. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's it's you're sort of babying them to some extent. Exactly. Maybe. So. The bigotry yeah. of low expectation. Yeah. There's a little bit of that there. So. Um, that's kind of part of being Australian to some extent compared to other cultures is a is a propensity to sort of bag people to some extent and to sort of, you know, you're not so better than anybody else and you, anybody is up to being bagged by somebody. It's almost like the more you rubbish somebody at times is, is a display of how much you like them to some extent. Um, mm. So we as a culture are quite used to really taking the mickey out of people and mm. and taking them down a notch or two, which in an American culture they would often go, but they what, do what, what, but nowhere near as much no. as Australians do. Like if we could rubbish a mate and poke fun at them far more than Americans would be used to. They would mm. see that as as quite strange to some extent to get used to. They're much more sincere and straightforward without irony and mm. and understanding. Okay, I'm saying these things, but I really love the guy rather than. Um, I, I think I was, it is a bit of a strange trait. I was on a training course with a friend of mine. Mm. And we had an American instructor. And at one stage she stopped and said, you guys stop it, I'm going to have to throw you out. I don't want fighting. Right. And we just looked at her and went, what are you on about? Right. This is just mate's talk. Yes. I uh, didn't get it. Mm. She just completely missed it. Mm. She thought we were being mean to each other. Mm. Yeah. But there are comedians in America who engage in that sort of thing. Bill Maher is a good example. Mm. Yes. Uh, and they have these celebrity roasts, mm. don't they, which is a bit of a tradition. Mm. Yes. So a roast, you're right, a celebrity roast is a bit of a tradition there, but it's it's very apparent. We're all here to roast mm. Bob Hope or whoever. You know, it's a bit old school, the roast. There's yeah. less of it these days, isn't there? But it was... We all know why we're here. It's very open. We're going to bag you, but we love you. And uh, almost overtly stated, this is what we're doing, as opposed to Except an Australian. Trump. Yeah. When, when um, oh, Barack Obama joked yeah. about him being the next president. Yeah. And it's suspected that actually Barack Obama roasting Trump was what pushed him to finally run. There we go. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So... Anyway, that's part of the difference in our cultures and that's probably some of the explanation as to why Hank Azaria would be more inclined to apologise. So now yeah. if we get a, mm. an Indian actor to play Apu, will that be all right? Good question. Ev- evidently that's what some people see. Do we have to, to take Apu yeah. out of the quickie yeah. mart? Yeah. No. Can't take Apu out, out of the quickie mart. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Mm. <laughs> Did you guys watch that show on Netflix, Bridgerton? No. Yeah, right. It's it's set as a period drama. And uh, so they're all in that sort of old English period style and it's a, and it's a court sort of thing with princes and princesses mm. and kings and, and the goings-on between these powerful royal families in ye old England. But half the – well, it seemed half of the actors were black. And it was really, as you first watched the first episode or two, it's kind of like, this is really weird. Mm. This old English scene with cobblestone streets and and carts and stuff, and there's all these African-American faces and intermingled either as 
poor commoners, but also some of them were the, the royalty. Mm. And um, I think they did that as part of sort of actors' equity in order that black actors get a chance for roles in an old English drama. And after the first half hour or so, you then just settle into it and you go, okay, well, I, ex- I will accept that this is the premise and how things are and you just keep going with it and you forget- and that's all good. That's all fine. It works, but... Um, Why not? Yeah. Yeah, I wonder what people will do when they look back on Seinfeld hmm. because I see that as a really um, great mixed bag of humans and characters and... Hmm. But again, it would push some of these lines around yes. cultural... Yes, because the Norms. the soup Nazi was That's or, right. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and and things like that. Yes, yeah. soup Nazi. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you clearly didn't watch any. I was not a fan of Seinfeld. Oh, really? Oh, oh okay. I, I tried to watch it a few times, right? And every time I sat there thinking, it's just not funny. Right. Okay. Mm. All right. I don't know. It Maybe just you have to get into didn't it. tickle my funny bone. Mm. Nor does, for example. Um, What's that one with the young scientific brainwaves? Oh, yes, Big Bang Theory. Big, the Big Big Bang Theory? Right. Could not find that funny. Right. It was just guys acting goofy mm. and trying altogether too hard to be funny. Mm. But anyway, mm. everyone has their own sense of humour, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, down in New South Wales, Reverend Fred Nile has decided to retire from politics. Oh, no. Mm. That's the good news. The bad news is he's named his successor. <laughs> it's Vile Lyle. <laughs> Lyle Shelton. He's going to take over from Fred Nile uh, in the New South Wales party. So look forward to that, New South Wales. I mean, we get some rubbish up here in Queensland for characters that we've generated, such, such as Pauline Hanson or whatever, but... Um, well, Lyle's uh, from Fred, Toowoomba, isn't he? Yes, but hey, Fred Nile is must be born and bred in New South Wales. Thought. Mm. No idea, but he's he's been a fixture in the New South Wales Parliament for some years. Mm. Um, since the flood, I think. <laughs> right, yeah, the big flood. Yeah. Uh, Scott Morrison, he studied geography at university. Did he? Uh, it was a Bachelor of Science. But I think it was in some sort of geography type mm. thing. I think it was. So, according to Crikey, Scott Morrison wrote a detailed thesis for his Bachelor of Science Honours degree. And his thesis was the local history of a relatively obscure evangelical church known as the Christian Brethren. The full title of Morrison's 154 page thesis is Religion and Society A Micro Approach, an examination of the Christian Brethren. Assemblies in the Sydney metropolitan area from 1964 to 1989. That's what ScoMo was doing when he was at uni. From crikey. Right. Um, Prince Philip passed away. A, m- a minute silence on right. the podcast? Mm. <laughs> no, thanks. Uh, lots of people. Your respect. Mm. <laughs> I did it on Saturday. the bucket. He is no more. He shuffled off his mortal coil. <laughs> so... Uh, the BBC went ballistic, it seems, over there. The ABC well, came a close second, mm. I think. Right. Um, so they had wall-to-wall coverage, the BBC, of Prince Philip's death. 
and it's become the most complained about moment now in British television television history as viewers express their annoyance. (laughs) And at least 110,000 people contacted the BBC to complain. And so... Uh, another 233 people complained that the BBC presenters were not wearing sufficiently respectful clothes and another 116 people complained that it was too easy to complain. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, we'll see when... um, We'll see when the Queen... Old Lizzie. Yes, when she departs, whether there's a push for a republic... According to Daniel Flanagan, he's an ex-prince. Thanks, Daniel. Chat room. Um, new patrons, Greg and Shannon, just in the last couple of days. Thank you. We'll do a full list in a little while. Here's one that's interesting. Christine Holgate was the head of Australia Post, and she was the one who who recommended expensive watches for some of her management staff. And, Didn't just recommend them. Well, well, awarded them, whatever. And ScoMo came out in Parliament uh, saying this is a sort of outrageous behaviour, it's uh, taxpayers' money, and uh, if she doesn't like it, she can go, Some words to that effect. And she's come out swinging in recent days, has come out and said, well, I never resigned, I was, I was sacked, it was unfair, I didn't do anything illegal. And um, in light of the sort of movement about the bullying of women in Parliament in general. This issue has now cropped up. And uh, one of the interesting things I read was one of the reasons why they wanted to get rid of her was she was actually doing a good job in, in that she wanted to grow Australia Post and grow the business rather than set it up for privatisation. So the word sort of is that her predecessor, Ahmed Fahua, was highly in favour of privatisation and was setting things up for a sale. And this Christine Holgate came in and said, well, let's try and grow the business rather than trying to sell it. That's mm. what I'm here for. And, and she seemingly had quite good success at doing that and that rubbed up the government the wrong way and was one of the reasons why they latched onto this watches thing as a reason for sacking her. Is that more than just speculation, Trevor? It can only be speculation. It's very difficult to prove these things. But uh, it's a theory that I'm just putting forward. If you're looking, I sort of, when I heard her complaining about her treatment, I was just thinking, oh, you poor sort of, I'm not going to cry too many tears for a woman with millions of dollars from her history with Blackmores and now with Australia mm. Post and, and whatever. But uh, the more I read, the more it seems she's genuinely doing a good job of growing the business. And um, a lot of the franchise, a lot of Australia Post offices are operated almost like a franchisee Very model. Well. Yeah. Well. And they sort of were struggling to make mm. money. And what she did was they do a lot of bank transactions as part of their day-to-day business that you go in there for, particularly in small regional towns mm. where there is no bank, you can go in there and use them as a bank. And what she did was she actually forced the banks to pay a large commission rate, mm. much larger than they had been paying for that service. And that's really helped enormously these small franchisees 
to continue their service. And that was the deal that she offered the watches for. Mm. Um, like a really good... It was a reward rather than part of a deal. It was, yeah, a, it was re- a bonus. It was a bonus, yes, yeah, to, to the executives yes. who pulled off this major contribution to the... Um, Correct. You know, the yeah. profitable running of Australia Post branches. Yeah. So under the term, under, under the rules within Australia Post, she was certainly entitled to, to give bonuses, cash or otherwise. And it actually seemed like this is one thing where people really did a good job. Got a, anytime you can get money out of the banks and give mm. it to small franchisees, sounds like a good deal. So, um, so yeah, that's one of the theories going around that I've read that uh, – they had her in their sights because she was she was not up for the privatisation route. She was more into growing the business and was having mm. some success and um, they sort of used this as a means of getting rid of her. Mm. Mm. I, I didn't listen to the interview she gave, but I did uh, read a bit of the report of it and she complained, and I think quite justifiably, that mm. um, Morrison never made any attempt to contact her or talk to her about it. Mm. He just engaged in character assassination in the parliament mm. without giving her any opportunity to explain why she gave the watches to mm. these execs. Shay, it did look like a bullying behaviour. In, um, in I'm just trying to remember whether yeah. it was through the 7.30 report interview or through the podcast The Party Room, but um, I recall hearing that the watches were like a very meagre um, bonus anyway compared to yeah. what she could have and that also yeah. that this had taken place two years ago. Yes, right. that's right. So that um, adds to this speculation. Mm. You know, this suited Scott Morrison to take mm. it on now because it would be seen in poor taste in the midst of a pandemic but it had taken place some time ago. Mm. Yeah, so I think um, – and then, like, me and my friend were joking, like, does One Nation just, like, spin the wheel on, on where they stand <laughs> on particular issues? Because <laughs> she's abolishing family court one week and then she's standing up for Christine Holgate's rights the next. And yes. it didn't seem to make sense. But when you look at what um, she's potentially done for regional post offices, well, that is supposed to be Pauline Hanson's yes, her area, patch, her yeah. people. Mm. So, yeah, I think the whole thing's really interesting and I'm glad we had a Senate inquiry to get some more information about what happened. Mm. Seems, mm. seems um, yeah, a few, yeah, tw- few, icky, few icky. twists and turns in, mm. in that story. Um, so that's an interesting one, I reckon. Um, so that's Christine Holgate. Did you guys see the, the fairy bread story that the chaser did? Yes. No. <laughs> right. So the chaser basically did something to demonstrate how easy it is to to generate a folk a, a fake woke story so they got one of their interns to to sort of test the system and created a fake um, Facebook account that was obviously fake because it was only two weeks old and the person had only six friends three of whom looked like they were from Uganda or something. Like it was a funny, strange profile that would look strange to people who might investigate it. And basically this woman created an online petition that fairy bread be banned because um, 
it's transphobic. Yeah, you know, or some whatever reason or whatever. And and then they put out a bunch of press releases and a whole bunch of groups jumped on the bandwagon saying, This is outrageous. What are they banning fairy bread now? What next are they gonna ban? And and it really got a lot of coverage and a lot of media. And it was just an example where I think the sort of problem of wokeness, like I disagree with wokeness. I think it annoys me, but I think the problem of wokeness is overstated because I think little crazy woke actions by obscure people get beaten up and and travelled around the internet and the social media way with way more attention than they deserve because it's obscure people doing it. And this was a good example of that, where it was completely fake. One person and it managed to get through a huge amount of media and gain attention to it. So it was just a demonstration of if you want to press the anti-woke button, um, you, you'll, you'll get a bite really easily. It was an interesting exercise. Mm. So, so that was the chaser, guys. Mm. Mm. Well done. Mm. That was good. Mm. It was funny. And The uh, podcast I mentioned was The Party Room, John. Ah, right. Mm. Okay. Thank you, John. Um, Afghanistan. So a couple of things. We're pulling out. Paul, good idea, bad idea? Of pulling out of Afghanistan. I don't know, to be honest. I mean, good idea for the soldiers. They don't have to be there risking their lives anymore. And their families, of course. If you ask the Vatican, pulling out is always a good idea. Ha, ha, ha. Bad idea for the bad idea for you're on fire tonight, Joe. Afghan <laughs> girls and women who are seeing, you know, there's the sort of signs of slight liberalisation of Afghan traditional society, you know, starting to brighten a little bit for for girls in Afghanistan, and now everyone's everyone's pulling out and. It's just going to go back to what it was, is my feeling. Which, and I, I feel it's a, it's a dreadful outcome for Afghan girls and women, to be honest. Do you think their lot has improved much? Oh, I mean, evidently from reports, it certainly has for some at least, not for all by any means, and least of all for women in probably in the country areas, but certainly in the, in the cities. I've seen a number of reports of, you know, young girls doing skateboarding and doing fun stuff that they were never allowed to do before be- mm-hmm. simply because they were girls. Mm-hmm. So I think there is going to be a lot of um, backtracking in terms of, um, you know, girls and women's rights in Afghanistan, unfortunately. Shane, good idea to pull out of Afghanistan. Um. Not sure. I'm not that, yeah, not that, not that up to date about it really, but um, right. yeah, I just think um, I'm kind of glad, a bit relieved, but I know that we're leaving them a bit fucked, but mm. yeah. Well, but they weren't that great to start with, were they, I suppose? They, I the, the, the situation they were in, yes. Um, uh, my personal view is we should have pulled out a long, long time ago. Mm-hmm. That we can't achieve anything in that country by trying to impose our will on Afghanistan's. Like lots of countries have tried over a long, long time without success. It's just a, a just a tough place. And uh, it's not always about imposing, is it? 
Trevor. I mean, you can go there and build schools and, you know, encourage children, including girls, to go to school, get an education, improve their lives. It's not necessarily imposing. Uh, I, I dare say there were quite probably quite a lot of ordinary Afghan people who welcomed those things. So I, I think impose is just not really the right word. Yulin, it's, it's a divided tribal country. Indeed. And the tribes were fighting before and they've, always, they've got grudges going back hundreds of years. And in order to get things done, an outside force has to cooperate with groups. And once they cooperate with one group... They make themselves an enemy of that group's enemy. Yeah. So um, that's part of the inherent problem in the place that there's just this inbuilt conflict. And if you go in and try and do things and work with communities, you will end up having to be on one side or the other at different points, generating animosity automatically with the other side, unavoidably. Even with the best of intentions. Yeah, but that's just the negative side of things. I mean, mm. you make it sound as if they're incapable of change, incapable of anything else. But mm. if you think about all of us, mm. all of our ancestors were like that, mm. if you go back far mm. enough. Mm. They're all tribal. Mm. And, and they changed. Mm. And look at us now. So surely Afghan people, being humans, mm. are just as capable of change as our ancestors were. Yeah, I think it's a change that has to come from within, though, oh, rather than well, imposed. Maybe. With but the, what about with Japan? By, by what about Japan? Party. Japan's a good example. Mm. Mm. Uh, at the end mm. of the Second World War, mm. the Americans imposed a democratic form of, or a more democratic form of government mm. on, on the Japanese. Mm. They embraced it, and look at them now. They're but did the Japanese terrific. have internal tribal divisions like the Afghanistan, Afghanis do? Um... Look, historically they did, and they had, oh, yeah, they, they, had, they had years and years of warfare mm. between different clans, and mm. a, a clan is just basically a big tribe, isn't it? Mm. And so, yes, they did, and they eventually, you know, well, they don't fight each other anymore. Yeah, so you're saying that Japan was a tribal warring, warlike society at the time. Uh, Very warlike. A, 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 inter-tribal conflict God, within, yes. within Japan was similar to intertribal conflict within Afghanistan at the time that the America at the time of the Second World War. No, not at that time. Well that's the but point. But if you go back but, but, in yeah. history but, but, but okay. the How Japanese did, were incredibly warlike. Yeah, yes. But but by the time but when the Americans came and imposed their authority, at that point was it a divided tribal society? No, but it was a very militarized yep. society. Okay. So so they had evolved from a tribal um group into a more cohesive national military society, mm. yep, which was done internally Yes, but that's within. not to say it always has, has to happen in that, in that no. sequence or in that mode, you know? Well, I'm just saying one, they didn't have the problem that is the case in Afghanistan of the warring tribes when they imposed their authority on Japan. Well, so that's that's I'm my point. I'm not sure that that's that, a necessary condition. Because mm, I ju I just think you mm. you sell you sell the Afghani people a little bit short by inferring that hey 
that's just the way no, they are. We no, should just leave no, them no, to No, no, I'm not saying that's just the way they are. I'm just saying that they need to work it out themselves rather than having it imposed by other people. Well, what about the power mm. of ideas, mm. you know, and the presence of not so much the military, but the, there have been a lot of foreign NGOs operating in Afghanistan, mm. you know, doing good work, trying to improve the lot of the ordinary Afghan people. Mm. And, you know, just their mere presence conveys ideas, conveys ideas that change is possible. Mm. So you now have at least some Afghani people who have seen that things don't have to be the way they were in the bad old days, things mm. can be different. Can things life can be better and mm. different? Mm. So the idea, the seeds of those ideas have have been planted. So let's hope they grow. Mm. I mean, I just I just sort of really feel dreadfully sorry for the good people of Afghanistan who want to change, who want mm. a peaceful, you know, uh, orderly society rather than a violent tribalistic one. Mm. And I think they're being left in the lurch to some extent. Mm. Mm. Well, I think the problem is that uh, us being there isn't the solution. So we need to get out and let things happen internally let them without go back to doing things other than through their women in doing tents. doing um, things other than through military occupation. Uh, that's that's not the way to do it. So. Um, find other ways other than that. Anyway, we've just followed the Americans out because the Americans said we're going and, okay, well, we've got to go as well because well, you're actually you're protecting. Well, they're hardly likely to stay by themselves. Ex exactly. They'd be massacred. Exactly. Mm. They can't stay no. at the same time. Clearly. Yeah. So uh, one of the things we've had going on with our presence in Afghanistan are these allegations of war crimes by our SAS troops and... What we had was a decision by the head of the military that the um, sort of um, meritorious unit citation or award given to the SAS troops, the head of the army said, we're going to revoke those medals because of what's happened with the reports of multiple incidents and now the subject of investigation. And Peter Dutton came out and said, well, actually, no, I reversed that decision. It's only if an individual is guilty of a war crime will the medal be withdrawn. Mm -hmm. Thoughts on that? Peter Dutton was 100% correct. Right. Shay? Provided they actually investi are investigating it and do it properly. Right. Okay. So what if... The medal that was given wasn't an individual medal. What if it's a medal that was given to the unit, the SAS unit, as a um, as a collective? So it, it was a collective award given to the SAS unit. Mm -hmm. um, it was a, a unit citation rather than an individual medal to begin with. Then, Makes so it was no based difference. on that behaviour of the unit as a whole. Correct. Correct. It still makes no difference. I mean, if individuals behave badly, mm. they should wear the punishment. But hang on, no. individuals were brave. Mm. So it was brave individuals working together as a unit that got the recognition for all members of that unit. Mm. 
So bad behaviour on the part of individuals no. who are members of that unit. I don't think so, Joe. Well, it's... The, the, the well, good... well, well, individuals get a medal for an individual bravery. Right, right, but it was individuals right. being brave that, as a group. So there were multiple individuals who were brave mm. that got the unit. <sighs> mm. So all of the unit were being tarred with the good brush. Right, yes. Because yeah. of the behaviour of individuals. Yes. And now why can't those uh, the behaviour of other individuals take that? Away. Away. Indeed. No, come on. In the end, it's a gr- Paul, if you, if you say the award is, here is an award for the SAS uh, unit mm. as, as a unit as a whole. You mm. all get one because of the fine work of the unit and its, and, its, and its work as a group, okay? And most of them did fine work. Why shouldn't they get the citation? But if the if the group is then found to have a major cultural flaw in it, and a and a major problem in the group, um, it sort of makes sense to withdraw the group award. No, so it if somebody's received an individual bravery award, That's, and meanwhile somebody else in the troop is found guilty of a of a war crime, you don't take the bravery award from the individual. I take your point, but look. I mean, that's like saying every member of the group is responsible for the bad behaviour of those who did behave badly. But, you know, in in, in the heat of battle, no soldier is going to sort of stand up and say, hey, you, don't do that. You'll give us all a bad name. You know, it doesn't work Um, like that. Maybe at the point where, you know, they're drinking out of a... Prosthetic leg. leg. Um, that might have been a point to interrupt. Me, or, me Lai you know. was interrupted by a single helicopter pilot mm. pulling his personal browning out and pointing it at the soldiers involved in the massacre mm. and saying, if you carry on doing that, I will shoot you. Mm. Yeah. So it was an individual that reduced the, the scale of the Me Lai massacre. Mm. It is up to individuals to stop it. Mm. Yes, but it doesn't always work out, Joe. I mean, can you can you imagine yourself in that situation in a you know in a platoon of SAS soldiers in Afghanistan, and you saw one of them you know do something terrible? You're not going to shoot him. Why not? Oh come on, he would have in that me lying. Yeah, yeah, he was ready to shoot. Yeah, that was a different situation. I mean, I don't think it's well, it was a war crime. In, Com- necessarily in comparable. Yeah, in Mi Lai, the, mm. they killed hundreds mm. of villagers in cold blood, mm. not just one or two here mm. and there. And I'm mm. not saying that any of them are justified at yes. all. But look, it's like if you're a school teacher, okay, and you say, okay, class, today at the end of, the, at the end of class, I'm going to give everybody a chocolate because you're a great class and I, I think you're all terrific. And then... You know, 10 minutes before the end of the, the lesson, someone starts acting up and you say, oh, well, that does it. Nobody's getting a chocolate now. You know, that's punishing everybody for the bad behaviour of a few. Well, the, the counter argument is that you're not viewing this as this, this particular award is for the collective, not the individual nature. Yes, it's, but it's, it's a unit citation. Yes, but so it's, most it's, of the unit behaved appropriately, evidently. But, I, don't, yeah. I don't know, I wasn't there, but mm. I'm assuming that, that not all the members of mm. those units mm. who had a, a few but, ba- but, bad but, eggs, if you want to put but, it that but way. But the point of a unit citation oh. is 
that your they unit... They still did their service. But the point of a unit citation is you as a unit, as a group, as an organisation, collectively have got your culture and your shit together yeah. that you have operated according to outstanding uh, sort of levels of, of diligence and commitment mm -hmm. and doing the right thing. You as a unit are demonstrating to other units how to, how to work as mm -hmm. a group effectively yes. on behalf of Australia... Congratulations, group, for here's your group citation. Yes. If it then subsequently turns out, actually, your group had fundamental problems in it, the culture was not great. As a group, you were actually poor performing group. You don't deserve the good group award. Any individual, it's a, it's a good group award. I understand and you're a your bad point. group. I understand your point. I simply do mm. disagree that punishing, you know, withdrawing that, that that citation mm. from the men and women who did their job conscientiously and to the best of their capacity, mm. put their lives on the line. Mm. I mean, we all know the trauma that they go through. You know, we all know the suicide statistics for ex-service personnel and the, and the scorn that they're often treated with when they, um, you know, leave the military. Um, well, the love they're often treated with as well. Well, that... It's probably well-deserved. But, look, I just think it's totally inappropriate to punish a whole group for the bad behaviour of a few. Mm. Okay. We view it a different way. You see it as a series of individual awards. Each I, of those I, people I see it are as a, individuals I see it as a, a group. as a well-done group award. The, the, and, and that's what the Australian Defence Association, whoever they are, said that um, – uh, they were sort of following the line. Well, I taken, I've taken my line from their line because that sort of makes sense to me. But I don't think all the, you know, people who comment on, on the military uh, agreed with that decision, did uh, they? I, correct. I thought there would be disagreement for sure. I'm there sure would there not would be been. unanimous agreement on this at all. Um, yeah. so, no, I look, yeah. look, I just think, mm. you know, those who did the right thing, mm. they deserve all the awards they get. Mm. What do we end up with in Afghanistan? 41 Australian soldiers killed, 261 injured, financially costing us in Australia $10 billion, and that's just direct costs. There's now going to be a lot of incapacitated veterans, uh, and over the decades to come, there's going to be a lot of treatment of those, a lot of mental health issues. Um, there's been 500 suicides of veterans since the beginning of the Afghanistan conflict. Um, and now we have a Royal Commission. So we the do have, uh, what is it, TGA, I think, have just approved the trialling of MDMA and psilocybin right. for mental health. Right. For veterans? Uh, just in general. Oh. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of interest in MDMA for post-traumatic stress yeah. in ex-servicemen. Mm. Uh, with the thought that hopefully it'll reduce the suicide numbers. Mm. So very costly. Uh, dear listener, we've got Anzac Day coming up mm. and uh, I recorded an Anzac Day special last year. Oh, last year, yeah. Yeah, so you're welcome to revisit that on Anzac Day. Are you going to do one this year? I'm not doing a fresh one, no, but in that I did list the 41 names of the Australian soldiers killed and... Actually, what I'll do is I will repost it just so that you don't have to scroll back a year and try and find the old one. So I'll repost it and 
if you're sitting on your driveway in a private ceremony, you can listen to an Australia Day ceremony that makes absolutely no mention of God. So it's completely <laughs> without religion, and it's my demonstration that you can actually have an Anzac Day ceremony without a reference to God. So, uh, And in that, I think I say we should get out of Afghanistan. What are we doing there? Mm. So one year later, we're getting out of there. So... That's the Anzac Day special. Look for that in your podcast app. You'll see that pop up. Um, so the Australian Defence Association yes. are drawn from members of society who are interested in Australia's defence, right? but not necessarily for members of the armed forces. Mm. Okay. It could be anyone. Mm. So they're more of a watchdog. Right. But you can imagine probably quite a lot of them would be ex-defence mm. force personnel. Mm. Yeah, I would imagine they'd be... Quite a disagreement between people on that one. Okay, um, company tax. So during the 80s with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan around the world, lots of countries cut their company tax rates. The idea being if you cut the tax rates, then that will free up money that the companies will use to then invest and create more jobs. And um, funnily enough, that's not what happened. It turned out that their just profits increased mm. and... Now what we're finding is that, uh, so 20 years ago, Australia's company tax rate of 34% was slightly above the OECD median rate of 325 Our current rate of 30% is one of the highest and is well above the 23.5% median. But what we're seeing in the UK is their government has increased the tax rate from 19 to 25%. And in the US, Joe Biden has pledged to increase the tax rate from 21% to 28%. So there's a reversal going on around the world, at least in the UK and the USA, of uh, these tax cuts for corporate tax getting closer up to that 30% mark. And basically because they're discovering you can just keep dropping the tax rate, it's not going to help create any more investment. In fact... The companies just add it to their bottom line and indeed move their assets overseas anyway. So, um, so yeah, so that's an interesting move, I think, that the tax rates are going up around the world. Mm. Um, what else have we got here? Oh, this is one I found was interesting. So I've been listening to um, – there's a podcast – well, there's a television show on ABC called Planet America where they look at American affairs and Chaz does a podcast called PEP which is quite good. It was really good during the run-up for the election. And he came across a really interesting statistic, which I've found the source of, which is from a guy called Kevin Drum. Kevin Drum. And it's looking at COVID-19 mortality. And dear listener, if I was to say to you, oh, um, studies have shown that uh, African-Americans seem to suffer more higher mortality from COVID-19 than white people in America. You'd go, yeah, I've heard that. Like that's, we have heard that story. And what this guy did was look at um, COVID mortality of black and white Americans, but he looked at them depending on their circumstances of their education. Um, and essentially, if you compare black and white Americans, if they are of the same education level, 
their mortality rates are almost identical. So that was a really interesting view of things. And it shouldn't be that surprising, though, Trevor. I, mm. I, I came across something uh, from the United Kingdom some time ago, and they said um, people in the higher income brackets generally live longer and in better health. Mm. No surprise, because they can afford better food, better housing, you know, better everything that, mm. you know, protects your health. Mm. So Better doctors. <laughs> uh, down here it says, this is purely an observational study. Uh, it doesn't attempt to ascertain why low education levels are so deadly. There are some obvious possibilities, poor access to health care, crowded neighbourhoods, inability to work from home, etc. things like that. Mm. So good reasons why. But when you look at the graph, which was on the screen, it's striking how close the mortality rates are once you divide them up into their education levels. Very interesting. Um, so, um, and it's another example where, you know, really to the left I say to you, it's about class. It's about... Agree. It's about class and, and economic disadvantage Absolutely. is what you have to be I, concentrating on. And actually, Ken and Malik's mm. comment on the, uh, the UK, the Thomas Seale report, mm. was very much... Not that it wasn't only a uh, class and and um, culture, right? But there was that it was both. It was both racism and also. Yeah, I found Malik quite unconvincing in that article. He wasn't clear to me what he was saying. So Thomas Sewell, is yeah. it? Who came out and produced that study in the UK? And said that, there is no systemic racism. Correct. And Ken and Malik came out with an article, and I was reading, and I was thinking, Ken, I just, I just don't see. He wasn't as clear in his thinking as he normally is. I thought as I read that one. Yeah. Well, he was saying it was too simplistic. Yes. But it wasn't just as simple as black people are being picked on. Yes. Yeah, but then he didn't really offer. An explanation, I didn't think. So he sort of disagreed with it, but didn't really go into a good reason why. He yeah. sort of he, he sort of partially agreed and partially disagreed, but he didn't give a good reason why for his partial disagreement. I thought. So anyway, that was Ken and Malik. So seeing as we're on that, and in March, it's been reported that we've had another five Indigenous deaths in custody. Mm. Um, that's not a race thing. That's a a culture thing, is it? I don't know, mm. but previously pre when we've looked at it, yeah, what you found was once you're in jail, white, yeah, your chances of dying were pretty much the same or slightly higher if you were white. Mm. Slightly higher uh, if you're indigenous, actually. Uh, uh, no, your chances of dying in incarceration. Oh, chances the, of the rate. Uh, um, the figures that we, we produced mm. when we looked at this mm. in detail, I'm under the impression that if you're Indigenous, you are slightly less likely to die yeah. in yes. incarceration. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, of course, being Indigenous meant you are more likely to get into jail. That's right. Yes. But once you are in there, it didn't seem to be an Indigenous issue but as to... This wasn't, so if you approached yeah. it from like a police negligence... Point of view. Well, hang on, it wasn't police. This well, was well, look, prison negligence. Prison negligence. Prison negligence. But when you so say prison negligence, negligence mm. most well, of them die of Well, this is what I mean. Let's, like, let's say finish. 
that's just what I mean is like a, if you're going to tackle the issue, you know, from class or mm-hmm. like how how would you basically? Um, so you've got to look at you're going to look at prisons. You're going to take the race thing out and just yeah. and just try and get bad, better outcomes for all prisoners. It would be in it. Okay, so one of the studies would be um, that we looked at was once you're in prison, white people were were slightly more likely to die mm. in incarceration than black people. But the other statistic was, of course, if you end up in jail you're more likely to end up in jail if you're black. But we mm. never saw a breakdown or I've never seen one that would say what is that in an economic terms in terms of really poor people or really poorly educated people? If you're less than a year 10 education, what are your chances of ending up in jail, black mm. or white? It wouldn't surprise me. I don't know. I've never seen it. But it could easily be the case that it's imaginable that this sort of study would show that, um, in fact, what's really happening is if you don't have a university education, your chances of being in jail are much higher, for example. Or, and, in, and as your education decreases, your chances increase of being in jail. And who knows what it would show? I've never seen a study, but it wouldn't surprise me if, if it matches up that economic reasons... Well, economic factors show that you are more likely to be in jail because you're poor, black or white. Mm. And, and Th- that there's wouldn't also surprise a conflation me. with um, the US where deaths in custody is almost overwhelmingly blacks being shot by the police, with Australia where deaths in custody is people having uh, health problems whilst in prison. Right. So the number of violent yes. deaths even at the hands of the police over here, were negligible in those total number of deaths in custody. Right. Mm. right. So, mm. And culture is not just... Yeah. Sorry, Shay. Culture yeah. is not just education, of course. There are a whole no. lot of other things. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. So I really like this study because it does look and say, well, hang on, um, the base figure seems to indicate black people suffer from COVID mortality more than white people, but break it down into economic terms and... And suddenly the racism aspect disappears and it becomes actually a, a financial problem. Mm. That could be the case in lots of things. There could be a genetic um, And that's kind of what the Sewell report was kind, of, yeah, yeah. was kind of saying. Yeah. Economic things. Um, um, but, or, but, but also it was talking about culture mm. because it was saying certain demographics, right. uh, even though they were in theory black-skinned, yep. did better than other groups. Yes. So yeah. I think it was the But then they Caribbean might have been more financially well off as well possibly. as part of it. I, I yeah. think the argument was, though, that these people were similarly poorly off, mm. um, but they had different attitudes. Mm. Yes. An attitude, of course, is part mm. of culture, isn't it? Mm. Yep. So anyway, that's interesting. And you see lots, you know, this is one of the advantages. With, you see a lot of American data that we just don't seem to get here. Mm. in relation to stuff. Obviously, more people, more resources to spend on this sort of data that we just don't get in And just more people doing Mm. research, of course. Mm. Exactly. Right, um, how are we going for time? 8.52, eight minutes to go to keep Shay out of the shark tank. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, COVID vaccines, clotting of the AstraZeneca vaccine and... 
looks like the Pfizer one would be much better. And we've got two issues where Morrison can be criticised in that he put too many eggs in one basket in terms of supply, where he relied on too much on AstraZeneca from one source, and also the rollout of the vaccine in terms of getting it out. So, well, my mother lives with me, and um, our GP is yet to tell us that a vaccine's ready for her, and she's definitely in the high-risk category, and we're waiting. How old is she? She's 86. Um, with multiple health issues. So she is first in queue, should be, and we're still waiting. So uh, meanwhile, in some other countries, huge percentages of the population... US, anyone over 16 is now eligible. Right. And and not only eligible, but how many have actually got it already? Like, yeah. yeah, So my daughter, by the way, who's in her early 30s, Mm -hmm. she recently informed me that she's had both shots. Yes, there you go. So this is an issue that's going to come and bite Scott mm. Morrison on the bum. Sorry, I should have mentioned she lives in Los Angeles. <laughs> right. okay. That is relevant to <laughs> I was like, where did she go? Where did she fucking be? So Morrison thought, great, we've got through COVID in terms of um, incidence of it here really low, and he wanted to roll out the vaccine and be responsible for it. And, and of course, they've just done a really shitty job of acquiring it and then dispersing it. And people are going to see this. He thought he was going to roll into an early election come yes. October, November on the back of No, no, it's all success. the states. The states had all the vaccines they needed. Yes. Mm. And they screwed it up. Yeah. People get it. Yeah. I think people will get this and mm. um, they understand that we're a long way behind other countries and they're going, hang on a minute. I heard a report um, on the radio in the car on the way over here and they were saying that they've noticed younger Australians are now more reluctant to mm. get the shot, and it, unsurprisingly. And it may be a smart decision for a younger... Be, maybe. Because... They're low uh, risk anyway. Yes. And because essentially it's almost impossible to catch COVID in Australia unless you're really trying, like you mm. break into a hotel or a, or a hospital or something and actually okay. start licking the doorknobs. At You'd, the moment, yeah. until we open up the borders again. Exactly. Mm. But right at this moment, um, probably f- – um, I might play the audio at the end. Anyway, younger people rather than older people seem to be more susceptible to the clotting. Mm. And Isn't that interesting? Uh, yes. Women more than men. Yes, and and because how well educated? Yeah, that's <laughs> no, a good point. No, no difference as far as I know. Does education have an effect on and it, on blood and, clotting? On clotting. Nobody has anyone done a study. Good point. So, indeed. So, um, given that your risk as a young person of dying from COVID in Australia at this moment is extremely low, it. it could be at the point where you'd possibly hit more risk by going the AstraZeneca and maybe hang around and wait for the Pfizer if you can. Um, actually, you're more likely to get blood clots from being on the pill than you are from the right. Pfizer. Right. Mm. But you're more likely to get it from AstraZeneca than if you're not on anything at all. So, mm. you know, if you're mm. a male and you're on nothing, then... So there, there are some interesting... Uh, there's a UK research group who's mm. done depending on the background rate in the population, mm. your relative levels of risk. Yes. 
And I think over the age of 30, it's a shoe in no matter how bad. Yes, but that's in the UK? Yeah, that was two cases per 10,000 in population. Okay. But in the UK, you're actually a chance of catching COVID because it's so prevalent. Whereas in Australia, your chances of catching COVID at this point in time are virtually zero. It's really hard to do if you're trying to. So you can't compare the chances or the probabilities as as it's not the same. Like a decision that a 30-year-old UK person would make Mm -hmm. is quite different to a 30-year-old Australian at this present point in time. Right now, yeah. Yes. So So there's interesting discussion um, the viral vector, which is the AstraZeneca and the Johnson vaccines, mm. um, you can't take over a long period. So you can't have yearly vaccine doses right. because you'll build up an, um, a reaction to the virus that they're using as the vector. Right. Whereas the mRNAs, we can reuse over and over. Right. And for $100 million, Scotty was offered to build... Uh, an mRNA vaccine production facility in Australia. Right. And he turned it down. Uh, And they're saying for a long-term security, Mm. because the mRNA is such promising technology, we'd have been better off with that production facility here. Right. There we go. And that's the Pfizer one, is it? Is that an mRNA? uh, Pfizer and... um, Mm. One R. Moderna. Moderna. Yeah. So either of those... Uh, basically, moving forwards, they will be the vaccines of the future. Mm. He, he's just going to have some real trouble with this um, going forward. So who knows? We criticised Albanese for doing nothing and saying nothing and just standing on the sidelines, hoping Morrison would fall <laughs> over. <laughs> May have proved to be. Mm. It worked for Palaszczuk. Correct, yeah. Mm. Might, might have proved to be the correct tactic. So... Mm. Uh, so that it wasn't was the, that long ago when um, the Liberal government had the a picture of the vials and their little brand name beside it. Right. Yeah, so they were willing to take the credit yes. and be responsible just a few moments ago. Yeah, now, so his, his love of jumping in front of the camera and making an announcement <laughs> and telling all this is going to make it really difficult for him to extract himself <laughs> from the vaccine mess <laughs> and say, oh, it wasn't me, well... We've seen you on multiple photo ops. So, yeah. I heard one doctor talking about this issue of the blood mm. clots and he said based on the numbers that they have, um, a young person mm. would be more likely to die from the blood clots than they would from COVID. Yes, in Australia at the moment. Not that- only in Australia. In Europe. He was talking about Europe. Right. He said based on the the numbers of deaths of people who've died from these blood clots, he said it's uh, the number is higher than, you know, the the chance for a young person of actually dying of COVID. So where was that? Did you hear that? In Europe. Um, Look, it was was a doctor. I I saw it on a a video. I I thought that there'd only been 30 deaths in Europe. Oh, he said something like 52 or something like that. I swear there's been more than 52 Young people died of COVID. Mm. Mm. I, yeah, that's why I asked where that came from. Yeah, I don't so know. That what doesn't age group sound was, quite right. Anyway. And, and that also forgets about mm. long COVID mm. and all the other possible side effects. Mm. So it's yeah, it's definitely a different decision making uh, calculation here. Here at compared, the moment. Here at the moment, compared to other countries. Yeah. 
I, I think once the borders, we start talking about mm-hmm. opening the borders again mm-hmm. uh, and people want to travel, mm-hmm. uh, then those numbers are going to change. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, Joe. The, the number 52, I think, was the number of people who've died from the blood clots. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The number, statistically, the number of young people who died from COVID was, was a lower number. Than 52. Yeah. Oh, it was 52 in... Mm. Oh, I don't know. Look, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, mm. but he did give the numbers, and you know, it was like fifty-two if you if you if you got the AstraZeneca vaccine and you got a blood clot, and it was something like forty if you yeah. just got COVID or something like that. Well, next time that we're on the podcast, we will try and get I some know. numbers on risks and percentages, and we'll go we can through do that. that. Yes, we'll do that for the next time, which I think. Uh, Will probably be two weeks because I've got still a lot on. So <laughs> I need to prepare affidavits and other things and have a. Uh, it's not just the Tuesday night, it's all the prep leading up to it. So yes, I think I'm going to take next week off as well. Um, and I'll probably slot in the Anzac Day repeat if you're looking for that for Anzac Day morning. So look for that and I'll put that in. So until uh, two weeks' time on the live stream, see you then. Bye. Bye, everyone. Good night from him. Hello, Trevor. Daniel here. Uh, it's Monday evening, uh, more than 48 hours after I listened to the Anzac Day ceremony episode that you did, and it's still moving me. It's been stuck in my head since then because it was so moving. It was so spot on. It was so personal on your part. I just want to say thank you for for creating it and for sharing so much of yourself. It was um, it was touching. I'm not afraid to say that I choked up a little bit. Uh, thank you very much. Please keep up the good work with the podcast. I'm quite happy to be a supporter. Thank you. Bye. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf, on their phone, and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, 
contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.